evening. How are you? The Lord be with you. So good to see you tonight. Good to see lots of new faces in the house. This evening, we are overjoyed uh, to have you in our space, worshiping with us tonight. Uh, I got to tell you, uh, I've been looking forward uh, to this service for a long time. Uh, Good Friday has become uh, a really special day for me. When I was a kid, uh, I'm born and raised in church, for those of you that don't know me. And when I was a kid, um, we didn't, the church that I grew up in, which I loved with all my heart and still and will always have so much respect for, we just didn't really celebrate Good Friday uh, with any kind of passion. Uh, Good Friday Maybe you were a little bit like this in the church of your youth, if you grew up in church. Good Friday felt a little perfunctory to me, like kind of a religious obligation that you have to fulfill. Um, In some ways, I have joked over the years that Good Friday felt a little bit like uh, going to the funeral, uh, the death of like a distant relative. It was like, oh, Aunt Betty, that's so sad, you know. We didn't really know her all that well, but God bless her, you know. And it didn't, it just wasn't like a part of the heartbeat of our spirituality. And for reasons that I'll explain in this sermon tonight, uh, Good Friday has become really significant. For me, the cross has moved from being this kind of weird peripheral thing to being the very centerpiece. I don't know if you can see this, but we have this little wooden cross that's sitting on the table Uh, right in front of me here. And this wooden cross, this is my little wooden cross. And I keep this on a nightstand next to my chair in my office where I pray in the mornings. And that cross was given to me by a friend many years ago. It's made uh, out of olive wood from an olive tree from Jerusalem. And when I pray, I pray with that cross either right next to me or, and I'll be honest with you, there are times that I literally cling to that cross when I'm praying when I'm in distress, when I'm scared, when I'm fearful, I'll cling to the cross. And so the death of Jesus for me is like, it's just the center of the bullseye. And I'm getting emotional as I say it, but as we've been approaching this day, I've felt the emotion kind of welling up in me over the last few weeks. And I had a ministry trip last week to North Carolina and really, really wonderful couple days there. And I knew I'd have a few hours on the plane ride home to start kind of scratching out my thoughts about how I wanted to approach Good Friday. And I had this little tiny notepad that they'd given us at the little conference thing that I went to and a pencil. That's all I had with me. And so I just started saying, like writing out like what the cross means to me. And 90 minutes later, a sermon had just tumbled out right in front of my face. And those of you that uh, called New Life East home, you know that when I preach, normally I kind of just have a Bible And I preach more or less extemporaneously. I don't usually preach like this, with words like this. And so (laughs) I've got to be honest with you, all week long I've kind of been in this fight with the Lord. I don't want to do it that way, you know. And I just felt like, I just felt like the Lord said, just give it to them the way that I gave it to you. (laughs) And so in a spirit of uh, just honesty about my own heart, uh, I'm just going to preach it just the same way that I got it while sitting on a Southwest flight from North Carolina Uh, back to Denver, Colorado. And so um, maybe it'll go great. Maybe it'll stink. I don't know. (laughs) But it's going to be honest no matter what. So let's pray. (sighs) 
We glory in your cross, oh God. We praise and glorify your holy resurrection. For by the light of your cross, joy has come to the whole world. We're here tonight because of what Jesus did. Somehow your life, your death, and your resurrection have changed the whole story for all of us. And Paul has this great moment at the end of Romans chapter 11 where he says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths are beyond tracing out. We will never plumb the depths of the mystery, but we're going to (laughs) try. Oh, God. We say with the psalmist, we say with the writers of the New Testament, teach us your ways. Show us who you are. Show us what you're like. And I pray that somehow, some way, by the words that are shared tonight, I'm praying that you would tuck us in, or better than that, I pray that you would show us more than we already know how deeply tucked into the mystery of God and Christ we already are. And I pray that we go out of these doors different as a result. Grant it, I pray. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. He says, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Paul says that the death of Jesus is the first and the most important thing that the church has to say. And that if you lose this, you lose the gospel. Everything else falls apart. And that... I think is a strange thing to say. And what makes it even stranger is that for Christians, the death of Jesus is not just the death like of our heroic founder, like, oh yeah, that was our guy, go guy. But Paul actually says elsewhere that God was in Christ enduring what Jesus endured. So that, follow me here, it's not just permissible, but it's actually necessary for us to say that one of the Trinity died on the cross. What could that possibly mean? I told you this past weekend, Palm Sunday, uh, the story of Lisa, a gal in our congregation in Tulsa who had struggled with months with a mystery illness and was miraculously restored to life and health. But what I didn't share with you this past weekend was how on one of my many visits to the hospital with Lisa, when it wasn't clear whether she would live or die, her life was still very much in the balance. I remember her body had withered away. She was about 90 pounds or so. She was skin and bones. And I remember sitting by her bedside and holding her hand. And she looked at me that day with tears in her eyes. And she asked me this question. She said, Andrew, where is God? And that was a moment that I will never forget as long as I live. Uh, that question, where is God? I think that that's the question that we're all asking at one moment or another in our lives. Uh, the psalmist, one of the Bible writers asked it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist said in Psalm 22. That was David, by the way. And David knew the Lord's intimacy. He knew the Lord's nearness. And yet he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David looked around at a world from which God seemed to have fled and he accused God of abandoning him. God. Where did you go? And I have been there. 
And I would bet that most of you in this room have been there as well. When I was 16 years old, God made himself real to me for the first time. And I spent the next year or so in this state of sort of spiritual existential bliss. I was on cloud nine. Remember God being everywhere. I remember God being everything. And I remember that everywhere I went, I just sensed the presence of God. And then one day, just as suddenly as it had appeared in my life, just like that, the lights went out on my faith. And from there, from that point, I remember going into a tailspin of depression that now looking back on it, I recognize it as what the ancient St. John of the Cross called a dark night of the soul. And that's a time when God, he withdraws from your sensible awareness of God in order to purify your faith. That would have been great information to have back then. (laughs) I didn't know that then. (laughs) And so without having any clue what was going on, I remember I started blaming myself. Like maybe I'm broken, you know. Uh, Maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe something is wrong with me. Uh, Ambiguous and crushing shame amplified my sense of abandonment. And this went on not for a small amount of time. This went on for two full years, feeling neglected and abandoned by God. And then one day, I was in prayer, and I read Paul's words to the Roman church. God, Paul said, showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Paul said, Christ died for us. And that moment right there, that was just the light that I needed, that No matter how I felt, God's love for me was sure because Jesus died. (laughs) It's like I could look at this thing that happened on the cross and I could bank my life on that thing. That right there, the cross of Christ, that's how I know that God loves Andrew. It's objective truth. And it helped me. It really did. It stabilized me. The only thing was, back in those days, I didn't understand, like, why? You know, like, why is it that the death of Jesus has such power to comfort, even when we don't really know what's going on? Somehow, even the thought, I'm sure as I said it at the top of the sermon, the thought of clinging to a cross in prayer filled your heart with comfort. Why does it do that, you know? Why does it have such power to comfort? And I didn't know then, like, how even it was an expression of the love of God. I just knew that it was. I didn't know why, and I didn't know how. That is, until that day when I sat with Lisa and her question. And I remember I was 26, 27 years old, fresh out of seminary and feeling way out of my depth in this pastoral situation. So helpless. Lisa's sitting there, her emaciated body. She's got puncture wounds from the needles, the IVs, all over her arms. The tears that were streaming down her face. What does a 27-year-old say? What does anybody say to anybody in that situation that would make a lick of difference? And that's when I noticed it. We were in a Catholic hospital. And I remember looking on the opposite wall from where I was seated. And there was another emaciated body hanging there. With tears streaming down his face. With puncture wounds in his hand. And in his side and in his feet, with his head bowed in grief, it was a crucifix. Christianity forces us to say that the man who was pinned to the hardwood of the cross is nothing less than God from God. 
light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father through whom all things were made. It forces us to say, listen to this church, that the one who made the world was murdered in it. That the one whose power hung the sun and the stars hung helpless and bloody on a tree. That the one who cannot suffer did in fact suffer for us and for our salvation, just like the creed puts it. Paul again says, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, or as he says in Romans, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, what happened? That moment with Lisa in the hospital room, it unlocked it for me. And I remember saying to her, Lisa, look to Jesus. He's taken your broken body and he's made it his. And he's taken his broken body and he's made it yours. And he is here right now. Not in some abstract, existential, God is everywhere kind of sense. He's actually in your physical body right now that is suffering and dying. As you cling to life, you can trust Jesus, Lisa. That moment unlocked it for me. It unlocked it for her. And I remember her starting to weep. I started to weep. And we hugged each other in the presence of God. We call this Friday Good Friday for exactly that reason. That what happens on the cross is that God in Christ makes our history of suffering his own history. Jesus, think about it, church, Jesus has scars. He's got scars. They're the scars of our history, they're the marks of the mangled, beautiful life that he lived and still lives with us. He's not separate from us. The gospel tells us that he's one of us. And anytime we cry out, in fact, I'll say more than that. Anytime anyone anywhere cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can know that we are right next to God because Jesus, who is God, cried that too from the cross. <laughs> it's startling. It's mysterious. It's wonderful. G.K. Chesterton, the great writer from the 20th century, put it so well when he said that in that terrific tale of the passion, there's a distinct emotional suggestion that the author of all things in some unthinkable way went through not only agony but doubt. When the world shook and the sun was wiped out of heaven, it was not at the crucifixion but at the very cry from the cross. The cry which confessed that God was forsaken of God and now, Chesterton says, let the revolutionists choose a creed from all the creeds and a God from all the gods of the world. They will not find another God who has himself been in revolt. Nay, he says, the matter grows too difficult for human speech. But let the atheists themselves choose a God. And they will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation. Only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. <laughs> It's a long way of saying that God knows what it is to be a human being abandoned by God. Which means, church, and here's the good news of it, there is literally nowhere that you can go from God. As the psalmist said, 
better than he knew, even if I make my bed in hell, the psalmist said. You're there. And that, by the way, is what we mean when we say that Christ died for our sins. What we're saying is that Christ took the consequence of sin or the impact of sin upon himself. Paul writes this in in the book of Romans. He says that the wages of sin, you can probably finish it, is death. Jesus died for us. That means that he paid the wage. We might even say that in so doing, what he did is he bankrupted sin and death. And we now are free. (laughs) And we have nothing left to fear in death because of what our good King Jesus has done for us. That he's gone into the very bowels of death and he's robbed it of its power over us. Christianity from the first to the last is one thing. It's believing that. And not just believing it, but it's glorying in it. And it's not just glorying in it, but it's resting in it. In the knowledge that Jesus is with us and that we are utterly safe with him. About a month ago, I'm looking back at Roy and Betty Garcia over here. About a month ago, I got a call from Roy. Roy and Betty attend New Life East here on the regular. It's been such an honor and a privilege to get to know them over the last couple of years. And Roy called me because their adult daughter, Julie, was dying. And they asked if I would come to the house and pray over her. And I gladly said yes to that request. And when I arrived, the family was gathered around Julie's bed. And they were watching her hang between life and death. She wasn't conscious. Hours, maybe less than that, to live. And I remember, I'll never forget this as long as I live, I remember anointing Julie with oil and I began to pray over her and I said something like the following. I said, Jesus, you lived and died as one of us. You made our death your own and you're here with Julie. And I pray that you administer right now to Julie's spirit. Help her to know that you're with her and that it's safe for her to let go. That you'll carry her in death just as surely as you have carried her in life. And help her to know that you'll carry her family in her absence to help everyone here, Julie included, trust you in life and in death. That was a Wednesday night. We had March's first Wednesday service at the New Life North campus that I had to help lead. And so I scurried out of the house and I went and I helped lead the service. And I got back to the house later that night and Mandy and I were sitting on the couch and I got a text from Roy. Pastor Andrew, he said, when you prayed over Julie, she must have heard it. She passed away 20 minutes after you left. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Julie, I think in some deep subconscious way, knew that she was safe, that it was okay to abandon everything and flee into the arms of King Jesus. Here's Paul again. For I am convinced, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. The neuroscientists are saying to us that the first human need is to know that we are safe. We literally can't function without that knowledge. Every system of ours will remain offline and every capacity of ours will remain underdeveloped until we know in our bones that we are completely and utterly safe. And I am here to say to you tonight as a pastor and as a Christian that you are safe with Jesus. I'm here to say to you that he is the human God 
that he made you and he loves you and he is your companion in life and in death. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ means you no harm and that he will never do you harm. I'm here to tell you that he will hold you in every wonderful and horrible thing that life will throw at you until he leads you finally and safely into the kingdom of his father who is also your father where sin and death and fear will be thrown into the lake of fire. The psalmist said, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Jesus is the secret place. And the shadow that is cast is the shadow that's cast by the cross. You can trust Jesus. And I am praying with all of the faith in my heart tonight that you would. Can you receive that tonight, church? Would you stand to your feet as we prepare our hearts for communion? Can we lift our hands now to Jesus and begin to let adoration rise in our hearts to Jesus, King Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, God of very God. But somehow he came and he took on our flesh, our broken, frail flesh, Isaiah said that he was bruised for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Somehow his woundedness makes life for us. We don't know how that works. It just is. That God somehow takes human nature broken and frail and bleeding and dying, and he transmits life to us by it. And he's doing that even now by the power of his spirit in your minds and in your bodies as you give yourself to him he's giving you the life of Jesus and here and now even at the table he's doing it taking bread and taking cup Jesus our great high priest is lifting it all up before the presence of his father and he's doing what he did 2,000 years ago he's giving thanks and he's breaking it and he's giving it to us saying take this all of you and eat for this is my body it's broken for you do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, I have one request tonight. I'm asking that you would give us more faith. Wherever we find ourselves tonight, a marriage has fallen apart kids that we're estranged from, brothers and sisters that have experienced the fallout, pain in our minds, pain in our bodies, pain in our spirits. Maybe we're here tonight and we've never fully surrendered to you. Wherever we find ourselves tonight, God, teach us to trust Jesus who sweeps us up into the kingdom of his Father. Grant it, I pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. I'm going to invite our servers to come forward to serve communion tonight. Communion will be on my right and my left. As you come forward to take communion, you'll exit up the center aisle. You'll grab, actually, they'll put a little communion wafer in your hand. You'll dunk it in the cup, and then you'll take it as you head back to your seat. Don't go after that. We have one more thing beyond communion.
that we have to do tonight. But I say to you, brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God and they are given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.